to TGIF, the horror movie podcast with all the casual conversations about your favourite or not so favourite horror movies. This episode is a very special episode. You might have noticed that you're not listening to this on a Friday, um, unless, unless you are listening to it on a Friday, then you're listening to it on a Friday. That's because this episode is a bonus episode. Today we are joined by award-winning director and producer, best known for his directoral work on the indie darling Never Hike Alone, and the upcoming animated film Ghost Chicken. Welcome to the podcast, Vin DeSanti. What an absolute pleasure. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm doing uh, pretty well. How about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. It's a beautiful day outside. It's a beautiful day. It's all the way around the globe. Yeah, it was a nice day in LA today. It was hot, so uh, you know, both enjoying nice days uh, from our respective places. Yeah, I saw actually some friends on who live in LA on Instagram swimming today. So I was like, oh, I'm so jealous because it's yeah. it's winter here. So oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's not so fun. Um, great. So let's dive into a little bit about you. So you actually have your own film studio. Tell us a little bit about uh, Womp Stomp Films. Yeah, so uh, in 2016, um, I had been working up until that point in feature animation and I was producing uh, small projects and working on bigger ones and kind of, you know, kind of scraping my teeth on the creative side of it. But I wanted something that I could go off on the side and make short films with my friends and do festivals and things like that. So this little inter, like, uh, Instagram handle that I had, Womp Stomp, I ended up turning it into Womp Stomp Films. And it was an avenue to get the project Never Hike Alone off the ground. So we had something kind of to formulate the project around. Um, and it could be something that we could grow out of. And it really started with about four or five people. Um, it was people that I worked with in animation or people that I had met through doing other things or working on other projects. Um, and we came together around the idea of Never Hike Alone um, to sort of kind of test our test our abilities, see how it was like working together, see what types of imagery we could create, um, what types of stories we could tell. And, you know, working with something that's a fan film, you kind of have like a sandbox of playing with toys that are already there. So it was really about kind of like taking a concept that was there, giving it a new spin. And then with our skill set and our tool set, with which, which started as pretty like pretty low grade, I mean, pretty low grade, uh, production value and things like that on um, being able to build it up into something that felt cinematic and like a feature film, which is something that up until that point, you didn't really see many fan films taking on like a feature film look. Um, and that was a challenge. We thought that like, if we could break this mold and actually create something in the fan film realm, that was more something like dirty laundry or the power Rangers fan film that came out, which was done by higher level directors and people who would be working in the industry who were pulling favors and getting cameos by people. Um, it was sort of like, if we could recreate that, but we're just a bunch of like kind of people you read of, like we're the credits you don't read at the end of the movie. <laughs> we're sort of like tucked in there and we've worked on all these projects and we have these skills, but quite often when you're working in industry, you don't get a chance to step to the front of the table and take, take the lead. So that was, this was really our opportunity to do that. And since then, Never Hike Alone came out. It opened up a lot of doors. A lot of people that we met through making that movie are, you know, a team group of five people to about 30 people. Now I want to say we have like a full team that when we have everybody working on everything up to like 75 to 100 people that we've collaborated wow. with. And these are fans around the world who have made props for us or, you know, someone who's lent us like a voice acting thing or, you know, everything from post-production to development to scripts to, you know, actors and, and camera crew. It, it's been a real like journey and I never thought it would do that. I thought Wobstown Films was just this thing I would do with my friends on the side and now um, after kind of seeing the potential of it, we used it to sort of build the company so we could handle bigger projects. And that's sort of what we've been focusing on 
um, since then to, to sort of kind of ready ourselves for uh, bigger and bigger, bigger and better projects. Wow, that's really cool. Because um, obviously, when you're starting to do something just a like not necessarily a hobby, mm-hmm. but something for your own passion and fun, you never really expect it to just gain this momentum. And how did you prepare yourself for that? How did you respond? I mean, it was really hard. I ended up quitting my job that I had at the time. Um, I quit it in the winter of 2016 to 2017 to finish Never Hike Alone. And I was like, I really got to go at this. I really believe in it. Um, it, it, I felt right. Like everything else I was doing, like, yeah, I was showing up and I cared about the projects I worked on and I liked working with the people I was working with, but it was different when we were out there creating our own thing, something that like no one could come around and kind of like mess with or like change the direction of. And, and, you know, the only people who had control of the steering wheel was us. So it was both exhilarating and terrifying because you could, crash the plane into the mountain. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could end up stuck in the Suez Canal and that could be on your watch. Oh, so, no. Um, and so it was really like, it was it was kind of that, it's just, you know, finally breaking free from a system that felt that like, you know, let's baby you through the process and do all this stuff. It was like, no, just let me play with the toys. You know what I mean? Like, let me go out there and, and get everybody out there and show you that I could tell a story. Um, and then after that, it kind of became around that, that I realized that I, I kind of developed a nice system for independent filmmakers like myself to create, um, you know, good cinematography and get high production value and, and a group of people that agreed to work at certain rates and um, sort of, um, so, uh, you know, they donate their time and things like that. So we're able to kind of like work together as a group unit. So reaching out with other filmmakers around the country, uh, friends that I have in Flagstaff, Arizona or Portland, Oregon, or, you know, people in uh, Michigan and Chicago and things like that. And I was saying like, Hey, we're all going to collaborate. Let's get together in the city this weekend and go shoot. Um, the, the projects have been in varying sizes. They've had various types of equipment. We've had stuff like never hike in the snow, which is probably our most expensive and highest production value film that we've made so far. And then we've done stuff like spear to Haddonfield and happy Halloween. These, um, uh, Halloween fan films that we collaborated with other other filmmakers on, where it's you know it's a little bit more run and gun. We're shooting with DSLRs. We got a few HMI lights, but we don't really have anything that's super powerful. But we can make it work, and it's because the technology of of, uh, of film and the digital filmmaking that you can do with even you know cameras that are you know two two to five thousand dollars or even cheaper. Wow. If you know what you're doing and you can put the settings in the right place and you can light it the right way you can get a really, you know, cinematic image. And then in post-production, you can really push it even further if you know how to like get in there and really kind of pull, pull the numbers around. And so I think for me, it was recognizing talent and a lot of friends that I had and trying to do my best that if I'm directing it, I know who I'm pulling in to work with me. If I know someone else is working on something, I'm going to say, Hey, you know what, since you're working on that and you're trying to fill this, why don't you talk to this person that I worked with over here and fill that gap for you or bring this person on. So I get a lot of joy out of both directing and but then producing and bringing a lot of people for collaborative, collaborative efforts. And that's really where we've done most of our work is creating our own projects, kind of getting them going along in the background. And then when we're in the development phase, we go out and help other people execute their productions and help them hopefully reach a higher level than they would have if we weren't there. That's so cool. I feel like the horror indie filmmaking is very much a collaborative effort and and people are bringing and working together so much more than you'd see in another genre of film I don't know there's just something about horror do you, do you find that it's a lot more um open to those collaborative opportunities 
I really think it comes down to more of the fact that a lot of these independent horror films, the, the people on the sets are usually wearing more hats than one. So everyone's too busy to really kind of argue about who's doing what. Yeah. Um, on bigger <laughs> film sets, there's such a dividing line of who does what, who's responsible for what. There's definitely a large um, level of like people just being over it. <laughs> like no one... <laughs> Like everyone at the highest level when I get to work in some of the bigger productions, like they could give a they're so jaded, they could give a crap about whatever they're it could be it could be James Cameron coming after something and be like, whatever, I don't care what the fish is. I don't give a shit anymore. You know, it's their job, but they really don't care. But on these independent sense, people are so passionate about it because honestly, we may only get one chance that year to make a project like that. We may work on a bunch of other projects, but one time that year we have a vacation from kind of the excuse me, the bullshit that we usually go yeah. on a bigger set with all the other pieces and all the money that's up for, like, up for, like, you know, it would, uh, into the project. Um, us being there kind of knowing that, like, this is what we have. This is when we get to hang out with our friends. This is when my friend is the VFX supervisor. This is when my friend is the DP. This is when the people who, when I'm not on set, I'm also hanging out with or, you know, cheering on from the sideline as they're working on their projects. It's nice when we can come together because it's like a little oasis. It's that, that, that little school trip, you know what I mean? I, I, I kind of consider like every time you do a film, it's like a mini mini high school where <laughs> the crew comes together and you all share this experience for you know X amount of time, whether it be short or long, if it's a shorter or a feature. But you walk away and you're always connected to those people through that project. And so it's this really cool feeling. And, and it is. It's like sometimes you get to come back and do the same thing with the same people. Sometimes new people come in and they join the crew. And th there's something about just like, Every time we do one of these projects, the team gets bigger, the camaraderie gets tighter, and our, you know, our sites just keep getting higher and higher to because we all love doing this. And so, at the end of the day, we want to be able to, you know, be responsible for someone's project or get a chance to make some of our own projects, you know, for the budgets that um, can put us in the theater. That's so cool. I I love to do filmmaking. I have lots of ideas, uh, but <laughs> when I try to vocalize them to people, they're like what the fuck? And I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea up here. All right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's good up here. <laughs> yeah. That's always the battle is trying to make the mental image come alive within the, the camera lens and uh, yeah. within those frames. And sometimes it's like, it looks so good in my head. Why can't I get it to look like that? And that's, and that's really our pursuit. Our pursuit was from the very beginning, being able to take the images that were in our head and, and replicate them and say, no, this is what I was thinking about. We executed what we were thinking about. And so that's, that's really where a lot of our hard work goes into. And that's why we spend a lot of time in development, we do a lot of time pre-production. We want to make sure that we have all the right tools, not rushing out there and kind of saying like, oh, we wish we had this or we wish we had that. Usually the discussions have happened months in advance. By the time we get up to set, we're all, we, we, we have to go through our stuff because we don't have that ability to say, oh, we'll come back and pick it up, you know, yeah. and do this or that. It's like, no, there are no pickups. Like we got to get it right now and we're going to have a plan that finishes our day um and so it, it the pressure is really really high once you get out there i think that's why so many people know that like we're all working towards the same goal it really comes down to that kind of attitude that everybody brings to the set it starts at the top um and it trickles its way down and if the people at the top are excited to be out there they're excited about the project they're thankful for the crew being out there and understand that they're both out there to service the film but they also are full of knowledge in their own respective departments so utilize them don't keep saying no and pushing them away and saying, don't, you know, don't have input. It's their input can often kind of help you get through the day and inspire you to make changes that make your film better. So yeah, I really love the collaborative process of it. And I think that when you're on a set like that, it kind of 
just exudes out of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that's what um, really uh, contributed to the success of Never Never Hike Alone. Um, I actually watched it for the first time this week because I was like, I've got to keep it fresh. And I was Great. blown away. Like, I I can't wait to watch the rest. So yeah. um, I'll be jumping online tonight when I get home from my, I'm going to, uh, my best friend's doing my hair tonight. And so oh, <laughs> I might right. even get her to watch it. Get up for a nice home, on, home screen. That's great. <laughs> and it's just such a beautiful ode to, to Friday 13th. And um, what made you want to take on something like a fan film? Because I, from, I'm from i new to fan, fan films. It's um, mm-hmm. not something that I've ever really dived into before. And so I'm sure that, you know, yeah. there's a lot of criticism and mm-hmm. you were just able to just bring to life such a really cool exploration of the film and, and this beautiful um like homage to what makes Friday 13th so fantastic I mean totally it was I mean I never really intended to ever make a fan film uh, my goal when I moved to LA in 2008 was that I would worm my way through the system some way, somehow, and end up on a Friday the 13th making coffee. You know what I mean? Just get on a Friday the 13th set. Um, just wanted to be out there. Just wanted to see it behind the scenes. I wanted to see the special effects people working. and Just the whole, like, I wanted to see how it was made. I wanted to see how the bread was made. You know what I mean? And, you know, I applied at Bay Films when I was out there, and I didn't get in. And, um, and then the films went into development hell. And I started thinking about like, you know, here I am sitting around waiting for a Friday the 13th to come along. Why don't we just make something? You know, I could come up with a costume. I could do something or this or that. And so what ended up happening was one Friday the 13th, I ended up putting together um, this really cheap cosplay. And it wasn't too bad. With what I had, I could make it look pretty decent. And we, you know, I took some photography. We took a little bit of video, like one shot. Um... And it kind of kickstarted this whole thing. It was like, okay, so we did that on the last Friday the 13th. Let's, this Friday the 13th, let's do something else. So we do like little stop motion skits with like our, my Friday the 13th toys. So Jason throws an axe at my head and like hits me in the forehead with it. His little tiny axe and it's like sticking out of my head. And so it was like a lot of stuff. And that's where it really started. It was just like, hey, I love Friday the 13th. I want to celebrate Friday the 13th. Like everybody celebrates all these holidays all year. Every time Friday the 13th comes around, I celebrate. And if there's multiple Friday the 13th, I have multiple Even celebrations. Better. I have marathons at my house. I wear the costumes. I take photos and doing all these things. And so, you know, in the course of it, we were, you know, Friday the 13th was coming and going as far as like what it was it going to be. But the studios were kind of messing around with it. And I had this idea to do a short film. I had saw some fan films, I think, on one of the bonus scenes of one of the other Friday the 13th. And I thought, you know that's cool. But with some of the stuff, I think I could actually shoot something pretty decent. I wonder how close to that Power Rangers fan film I could make something. And I wonder if we did that, if that would be something that people would notice. And really, I, at the time I was on, um, you know, horror forums, because that's where everybody was at at that time. And so people were always talking about Friday the 13th. We were talking about theory. Um, I watch, I go to Fran- Friday the 13th franchise.com a lot, read all the news and get the updates on the movies. And really for me, I was like, I want to create a five minute short that I can put on Friday the 13th franchise.com and have a bunch of Friday the 13th nerds flip out about. You know, if, it, if it's good enough to get like a, a couple hundred views, I'd be really, really happy. Awesome. And <laughs> we went out and we, we made a trailer. Um, you know, I, I ended up asking Andrew Lady to kind of come and play play the hiker. I made friends with a, a cinematographer, uh, Chris Thellis. My friend uh, Kyle Klein was producing. Um, and it was re- and another friend of ours, Jonathan Crow, was really the one that, that was like our first gaffer. And then J.D. Martz 
who was an additional cameraman. And so like the, the little, our little group created the first trailer, um, which sort of got the whole thing going. We saw that after the first trailer, there was a really big response to it. You know, our, the trailer jumped up in like tens of thousands of views, wow. which was a lot to us at the time. So yeah. we were like really, really kind of like, wow, there might be something here. Maybe, maybe this is worth crowdfunding for. And we started to look up the rules. And I tried to figure out what was there. Um, along the process, we discovered that abandoned camp that we shot at. So when we first shot the trailer. So cool. <laughs> yeah, when we first shot the trailer, we shot it at a set of cabins that we didn't end up using in the film. It was just to get the, just the idea on paper to see what, how people would react to it. The second, when we went out a few weeks later, um, through a suggestion by the guy who owned those cabins, he's like, you should check out this camp up the road. Long story short, we ended up finding this abandoned camp that was abandoned for about 20, 30 years. Ooh, um, and it had a road that led up to it. And we figured out a way to get gear up there and said, if we have this Hollywood film set that we can take over, how much is it to get, to get lights up here? How much is it to get these things? So I started to ask those questions about like, if we want to make this cinematic, what do we have to do? And so there was set dressing, there was construction, there was rehearsals and blocking and previs and going through it over and over again, camera tests and trying to figure it out until we got to the, the fall and we were like, let's do this. We did a crowdfunding campaign. It completely failed. Uh, we raised about $25,000, but we wanted 50. So we didn't get, we didn't get it at the time. Uh. Um, we were able to convince a few people to come in as private backers, putting up our own money to shoot the first half of the film. Um, that was good enough to get us the next trailer. So we had about half the film shot. We still had a long way to go um, over that break. Spoiler alert for anybody who has not watched the film just yet. <laughs> Stop and watch it now and then come back. And, or just don't listen to this part. Uh, in January, we signed Tom Matthews, uh, our, um, our executive producer, uh, Barry J., was put in contact with him. He suggested that Tom check out our film and maybe think about doing a cameo. Tom really wasn't going to do it until he saw the footage. And then we sat down and had a conversation and we kind of figured out for how for him to kind of make an appearance of the film. And we decided to keep that secret. And so I think this was around the same time that they canceled the Friday the 13th in 2017. So Friday the 13th fans were really bummed. And the popularity of our film through the second crowdfunding campaign that was successful we were able to raise about twenty thousand dollars um and we you know we set a lower bar we just needed to make half the film now so we kind of had our sights but we were like let's not tell anybody about tom let's see if we can get this film made first <laughs> and then let's get tom <laughs> out here and let's shoot his scene and then let's find a place to debut this and get it out there and so there was this really big i mean it took over two years to get the film done wow um, when you really really think about it um and in the home stretch, it was, you know, we really kind of worked on what we did in the fall and what we did in the spring was like night and day. Like in the fall, we got some good stuff, but we really struggled. We lost a lot of days. We lost, like equipment broke, um, cars broke down. It was just bad luck after bad luck. It was really a sign of like, you either need to commit or go. And that's when I quit my job, focused on it full time and kind of fixed all those communication nuances that were kind of going askew when we were at the start of it. Um, we finished the film. Um, get it out and looking for a place to debut, we ended up getting in touch with the Telluride Horror Show and lo and behold, we're able to debut at, you know, one of the larger um, genre festivals in the country. So now it's, again, the hype started building. Our second trailer was like on Bloody Disgusting and, and hitting up all the, the horror websites and people were kind of keeping an eye on it. And even people who don't even take fan films seriously were starting to be like, maybe, maybe there's something here. Um, yeah. When the film released in, in October, it was... 
it was really odd for me because again, like this started as a five minute short, it turned into a 55 minute mini feature. Um, and it was debuting at a, at a film festival and it was releasing online and it was getting tens of thousands of views and it was getting write-ups and all the major kind of uh, genre websites. And I was just really kind of blown away by the whole process because for me, you know, I just wanted to tell a cool Friday the 13th story. I had an idea. I thought of how cool would it be to like go one-on-one with Jason Voorhees. If you went into the forest and encountered Jason, could you survive that night? Could you get out the next morning? Could you get away? And those situations, along with finding the camp, sort of just gave us the opportunity to tell Friday the 13th in a different light. I mean, for years, they've been trying to figure out how to do a new Friday the 13th, and they pretty much just keep going back to the old formula. Or they do something that's sort of, uh, you know, like a Jason versus Carrie or, you know, know, there's some kind of like gag to it that's not really about it's yeah, just Jason. some extra piece, yeah. some extra layer. Jason in space, you know, Jason in hell, uh, Jason um, versus Freddy. Jason in hell was great. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, I know, I know some people love that film. Uh, and I'm good friends with Adam Marcus now, but it was, yeah. you know, so it was, I just felt like, man, it would just be nice to see Jason be scary again. And yeah. just be kind of this thing and not, and try not to like, try not to do too much. Just make it like a simple little story. And, yeah, you know, fantastic. the Tom Matt. Yeah, and Tom Matthews showing up at the end of the film was a big thing for fans. So now, after the year where Friday the 13th got canceled, all of a sudden, you know, here's this movie. It's way better than I thought it would, like, pretty much for every fan. It was like, this is better than I thought it was going to be. And it has Tom Matthews? Well, maybe Friday the 13th doesn't suck so bad this year. <laughs> and, you know, since then, it just, I, I thought that, you know, it would come and go and I'd move on with my life. But it's opened up all these doors and opportunities for me to continue with yeah. the series, kind of continue telling the story. We want to get to an opportunity to really kind of tell Tom's side of the story. And so we've been maneuvering around about like, how do we do that? Because it's a much bigger story. There's a lot more money involved. We start to really take some really big risks there. So, you know, we kind of took steps. We made a music video with Disappear to kind of work on some of the things that we were trying to figure out with uh, like location stuff. And then we made Never Hike in the Snow because we were like, okay, we're upgrading our production value. Maybe it'd be good to make something that was kind of contained to make sure that like these procedures work. And if we go it to something that's like five times the budget that we can multiply that and we can actually execute that. So, so far it's been going pretty well and our next steps with it are really to kind of finish it. Um, our original plan was to go and do a web series because that's sort of what in the rules of fan films, they suggest that yeah. if you're going to do a fan film, we'd rather have you make a web series than a movie. Well, whoever came up with that rule can kiss my butt because fans <laughs> really got confused when we did that and never hyped themselves. They're just like, because, wait, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> yeah, so people who are just kind of discovering it are like, wait, what do you mean? This, this is a, the first episode? Where's the other episode? It's like, well, we can only make one at a time. And so yeah. we're kind of saying screw it and saying, listen, if fans really, really want it, um, Later on this year, after the Never Hike in the Snow Blu-ray comes out, and we do another crowdfunding campaign for our kind of super cut that we've done of everything so far called The Ghost Cut, we're going to approach doing Never Hike Alone 2 as a feature film. So instead of breaking it up into three pieces, we're just going to go after it, try to raise the full feature film budget, um, and really just say, this is our only chance. This is our window. You know, We want to raise the money in 2021, shoot in early 2022, and release in late 2022, um, and sort of kind of put all these questions and answers, uh, you know, on the, on the screen and, and finally say like, this is where it's all building to. This is why each of the Never Hike Alone films sort of have an open ending. It's because it's supposed to lead and be a part for this actual film, which is now that we have Tom, now that we have Vinny Guastafari to come back and reprise his role as uh, Rick Warren. Uh, 
Um, and we have all these other characters that we've created, like Kyle MacLeod uh, and Diana Hill in, in The Black and the Snow, who you get to know when, when you watch that movie. Um, all of these characters kind of come together and they all have backstory. And it's all something that Friday the 13th really hasn't had before, which is context and continuity. You know, we've had a little bit with the Tommy Jarvis saga, four, five, six. It, it, you know, we follow a character through different stages of their life. And we feel like this is a great fourth chapter for Tommy Jarvis. What is the end of sort of Tommy Jarvis's story with this? Because you thought he had it at the end of part six, but guess what? They needed another sequel. So Tina <laughs> undid it and then they made more and more and more. So it, it's kind of nice that like now Jason's back out of the grave. No one can find him. Tommy's looking for him, but has no luck and so he just feels like this crazy person who thinks ghosts exist while everybody else is thinking like jason is long gone um and it's, it's just this really for me it becomes this emotional story about tommy about the the diana character about even you know kyle's character kind of still can, like getting sucked into this new world that he didn't even yeah. know about and tommy being like the obi-wan of it all of like, listen, you don't know what you're saying. I mean, it really is. It's it's this really nice kind of like Star Wars kind of epic story. Mentorship about, kind of thing. It really is. I mean, it, it's, you know, like Tommy's Obi-Wan where he's the old sage who's been through it before, who kind of knows the dangers that are out there and knows kind of how to defeat it. And you have the young upstart, you know, Kyle McCloud, who haphazardly skywalkers his way into the story. And, you know, does what nobody else in 30 years has done since Jason has returned to Camp Crystal Lake, which has gone in and come out. So we tried to show stories of like saying that like in between this time, anybody who went in there and encountered Jason did not make it out. They completely disappeared. And by Kyle escaping, it kind of is the big kind of um, it's the fulcrum of the entire uh, series because this is something that's never happened before. Now the cat's out of the bag. Now Jason's secret is out and he has to, basically kill everyone who knows the secret or die trying. And so it's kind of a cool follow-up to Never Hike Alone now that like his secret is out. And at the end of the film, we see him walking after the ambulance because we're trying to say that like this story isn't over. And even though they got away in this moment, Jason is coming after them and they're in trouble. And there's going to be a lot of different things kind of going into the story uh, that surrounds it. And we're excited because it's something that you know, Friday the 13th don't usually do very often, but when they do do it, are successful, which is give their characters something to do. Part four, part six, part two, part three. You know, those characters are all up to something. They're all on their own little mini journeys through the story. And this story does that. Yeah. And it's pretty well woven. It's got emotional elements to it. And it's got a lot of horror elements to it, too, which is really cool. So we finally get to take our Jason and go like full boat with his like murder capabilities, um, which will extend off of, yeah, what we did in Disappear in the Snow. We want to sort of show that that's sort of like our kill reel to be like, these are the types of kills we can do. These are the types of features we can make. Now we want to put both of these things together. It's just really, really expensive. So it's going to come down to thousands and thousands of of Friday the 13th fans uh, joining on this little journey with us. And, um, you know, and backing the next Kickstarter. I mean, last time we went from 277 backers to 2,500. So we're hoping we can get into like between 5,000 and 10,000 with the next one. If everyone, uh, we think is excited about where is the project. Um, where can we find the Kickstarter? It's not up now. It'll probably be up um, in the fall, but it will be on Indiegogo. If they follow us on Womp Stomp Films, um, at Womp Stomp Films, um, like Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, or www.wompstompfilms.com, um, we'll post about it. Uh, you know, you, you, you won't be able to miss it when we actually go out there. We'll be doing a lot of <laughs> press about it. Awesome. Um, but 
yeah, yeah. But in the meantime, we were kind of like still wrapping up Never Hiking the Snow. We have a few co-productions we're working on. So it's sort of slated for the end of the year. Once we get all this done and we can really step into it with a, with a clear head. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you excited? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm really excited about it. I'm like, trust me, I've been wanting to, this is the one I've been wanting to make. And so yeah. I just haven't wanted to risk something as big as this. Um, unless I knew that I had all the pieces in place. I, d- I wouldn't want to put the fans money at risk going out there and trying to achieve something that we don't have the ability to do. Um, and I also wouldn't want the idea to suffer to say, I have this idea, but I have to cut it down in so many different ways that it's no longer the original idea that I want. You know, I can't support the idea that's there, so I won't make it. So I think what we've done in this sort of round has sort of scaled it down in a way that it's more affordable, but it doesn't take away from, you know, uh, the, the sort of overall story and impact. Like, yeah, we would have liked to have had some fire effects and some, <laughs> and some lightning and rain and some, you know, a rain machine and all this stuff. And it's like, you know what, if I have to cut the rain machine and I have to cut the fire gag, it doesn't okay. ruin the rest of the movie. That's okay. Um, cause those are basically, <laughs> that's like $50,000 a day on its own. So oh my gosh. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's insane when, when the, when the bills come in. Um, so yeah, it's just something we have to be really, really cautious about because there is no on the back end for us profit. Like we just have to make the film and then it sort of stops there and we can make back the money that we spent on the film, but that's a huge risk for us. And quite often I'm taking out, like I'm making personal loans in a way where I'm taking money out of my account, putting it into the film because I want something extra or I got to pay for a little bit extra post-production or something we didn't think about, didn't get covered. So I'll cover it. You know what I mean? Like, so it's kind of a a, a two-handed thing. And in the end, it's really about the passion for it, the passion for Friday the 13th and getting something out there for the fans because it's been since 2009 since they made a Friday the 13th. Yeah. Wow. Now fans are getting itchy. So we're we're all making our own (laughs) movies now. I was 18 in 2009, so I'm just like, oh, wow, that was a really long time ago. And it is yeah, unfortunate, it the the situation that, um, that you know, put a massive halt to mm-hmm. any progress. And I, I'm not up to date with any of the progress on that, on the, on the lawsuit or anything. So it's messy. I, it, look, I had, um, uh, Mel from Horror Geek Life telling me about mm-hmm. it. And I was just like, wow, I didn't know it was so convoluted. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really unfortunate. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of, yeah, I mean, I guess to a certain <laughs> degree. Um, but I mean, as a fan, like I'm, I'm also tr- trying to push for the fact that like we want a new movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that like the fan base is there. A lot of other things are kind of getting re-kicked, you know, rebooted and things like that. Child's Play, you know, is, is a pretty yes. good version of that. But, you know, you look at it, it's coming out on its own original story. Um, from the theater and then the classic stories being put in a TV show, a streaming series. So it's like, ah, Friday the 13th kind of fits that mold. And we almost got there five, six years ago, but between, you know, Paramount kind of dropping the ball, uh, the rights kind of being an issue even before, you know, the, the lawsuit. And now the yeah. lawsuit, it's like, nobody wants to touch it. And, you know, even the studios are like, listen, we're not going to like entertain any Friday the 13th ideas until the lawsuit is settled. And we knew, we know what we can make. Um, so yeah, in the end, the fans are really the ones suffering right now. And yeah, other fans are picking up the ball. I mean, it's us, it's, you know, we have another, we're friends with another good uh, group of uh, filmmakers. They're making a film called Jason Rising, which is coming out later yes. this year. They haven't, they have an Indiegogo going on. That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you're working with them on that, aren't you? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, one of the producers and then I also am a co-writer. Awesome. Uh, so I kind of go in and do polishes on their scripts and give them 
again, it, it's that sort of mentality that we try to take the boss stop mantra. Anyone who is who is interested um, and can take the time and will sit down and go over things like thoroughly, like I'll go through their scripts and I'll go through their shop kind of breakdowns and say, okay, did you think about this? Do you have these elements? You know, and usually and usually help them avoid um, sort of big pitfalls and things that like on the day would have really slowed them down. And we just, we kind of discover them in the moment and say, okay, before you get out there, let's fix this. Let's you do this first. Go, <laughs> let's do this first. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, James Sweet called running we two, two fellows running that. We're working on another one called Dylan's New Nightmare, which is an extension of Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, I love that uh, film. Yeah. It's probably so my Miko, favorite. <laughs> nice. So Miko uses come back, the real Dylan. Um, yeah gage creed and uh, and the kid from uh kindergarten cop Uh um so he's back um and he's he's going to reprise his role uh and so we're co-producing on that dave mccray is going to be playing uh, freddie krueger he's a personality out of canada and then that's going to be directed by cecil laird of the horror show based out of phoenix so you know it's kind of nice to kind of be bouncing around and and working on other people's fan films we got original stuff um you know, working with a good friend of mine, Renee Rivas, right now, out of based on a Flagstaff on an original short called Judy, um, and then I'm starting early, early pre-production on a, on a ghost story with another friend of mine from uh, Idaho, uh, Jeremy, wow. uh, to get something later this year. So we're kind of putting all these things together now that COVID's sort of been figured out. Um, there's procedures that that independent filmmakers can take to sort of hit, you know, get out there, do it right. You know, take the right precautions. You know, with vaccines coming out, it's going to probably get a little bit easier. Vaccines. Um, Our country doesn't know what that is at the moment. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, ours uh, is yeah. just getting started, I guess. We can't um, because we have AstraZeneca here. Mm. Uh, people under fifty-five can or under fifty can't have the AstraZeneca shot mm. because something about a rare blood clotting situation. I don't know. So I know. Um, our like, hey. prime minister had the chance to order Pfizer vaccines and said, no, let's not. So I don't know. Well, hopefully they run into that for you guys soon. But for, I mean, you know, so it's kind of like, I, hopefully we'll see with the rollout here, um, independent films being able to kind of get back out there. But there is now this extra layer of health and safety, which is a brand new department, which okay. is going to land on a lot of people's um, sort of budgets. Yeah. Way, so you, depending on where you shoot, depending on if you're a SAG affiliated, if you're non-union, you probably get away with a lot of things. If you're any type of union, there's going to be somebody there who they need to see that there's a health and safety officer on there. So you got to you got to think about that. But there are lots of great ways for filmmakers to, um, if they're doing it down and dirty and they're doing kind of a homegrown uh, independent film shoot, that there's certain tricks of the trade now that we can do to just make it a safer set. And I actually think in some ways it's actually made it a better set in general. Yeah. Some of the practices we should just do continuing going forward. Cause it's actually really nice. Like hygiene, like basic hygiene. Yeah. Like, no, there's like certain hygiene things. Um, I would say like with crafty, um, it's nice not having all the food laid out because then I don't walk around and keep grabbing handfuls of M&Ms all day. Like, <laughs> well, you have to go up and ask somebody for it. Uh, excuse me, where's my M&M's? <laughs> so for the 47th time today, can I have those M&M's again? Like, oh, you're like scratching your neck. You know, when you have That'd to vote, me. when you're, you're an M&M crack addict like I am, you kind of get embarrassed asking for it 12 times a day. So you, I don't, I don't even ask anymore. When I'm on, I don't eat chocolate on set. Anymore. What's your, what's your favorite M&M? Peanut. <gasps> me too. Yeah. No, I, oh man, I can eat handfuls of peanut M&M's. Uh, I eat yeah. peanut M&M's until my mouth is rainbow. Yeah, there you go. That, yeah. That's about right. Yeah, I'm that and cookies. So I, now that I, you know, now that I walk up there, I want to, you know, I want to seem healthy. I'm like, you know, just have a water. 
I'm just, you got a banana in there? You got some grapes? <laughs> 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 Well, speaking yeah. of uh, COVID, mm-hmm. um, the reason I did, well, we kind of got in touch was because we were, I was looking for people who, you know, had still managed to maintain their creative outlet and um, their um, skills within the industry, even though COVID, mm-hmm. you know, had kind of shut down a lot of, of filming. Um, uh, but you were saying earlier that you've worked in animation. So I am guess that kind of led to your upcoming project, Ghost Chicken? <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I wrote Ghost Chicken as a live-action project, um, thinking, I'll figure out the chicken thing later. <laughs> and um, as I got sort of closer to it, and I was actually figuring out how to fix it, I was actually working with a producer to, to shoot it live-action. We were talking about all the options. We're like, if we rent a chicken, do you think you know, we're going to get shots that like the chicken will look at camera? Like, how are we going to direct the chicken? Like. <laughs> He's like, well, we get a CG chicken. I'm like, you know how much CG feathers cost? Like, and to make them look good? Like, I don't want a CG chicken because they're going to look bad. Oh, real chicken. You know, we don't don't have the money for a live action hybrid. And, um, you know, and then COVID hit. And so we were kind of like, ah, we'll shelve it and kind of talk about it later. And then something happened where I was watching something and I just imagined ghost chicken as an animated feature. I was like, you know, it's got those elements. Like, there's a ghost chicken. Like, that itself is kind of goofy and funny and we could probably play with that and use animation to, to stretch this story a little bit further. And so knowing what I know about um, animation, spending a lot of time in development story editorial, I ended up contacting a few storyboard friends of mine and saying, Hey, are you available or do you know anyone available? And I eventually talked to a good friend of mine, Josh Zinman, who I worked with on Freebirds and Rock Dog, who recommended me a couple of his students who had worked um, through his class. So um, I ended up contacting them. I said, Hey, I got a couple hundred bucks for each of you. If you each want to take a piece of this short and storyboard it out, um, let's see if we can build this and, and go from there. So I sent them the script. They storyboarded each section. Each of them probably got about five minutes worth of material, five to seven minutes. Um, I cut it all. I got all my friends to do the voices. And so we built the working animatic, which is something in, you know, previously when I worked in animation, that was hundreds of thousands of dollars. To yeah. And we were able to do it for a couple hundred bucks and some elbow grease and do some a lot of the work ourselves and cut out a lot of the middlemen stuff and just focus on, here's the script we have. Let's focus on the creativity. No one's going to come in with an agenda and tell us that we have to change it for this or change it for that. Like, it's really up to us. It's really up to us to make it as goofy as we want, as serious as we want, as scary as we want. Um, and really, it went to the goofy funny. Uh, it's a horror comedy. It shows definitely a different side of my personality. Um, I do love making serious films, and cinema and art and stuff like that. I'm really like, I really do like to nerd out and kind of go with that and really go for that. But I also love comedy. I love making people laugh. I'm kind of a hand myself. So it kind of comes out pretty naturally in, in the comedy world, but working with storyboard artists is a special relationship in animation where it's funny. The first animated film I worked on, the one of the storyboard artists said, I don't even know why they make a script. Like they should just give us an outline because we end up rewriting most of the scripts and story anyway. And we sit there, we, when you see the scene, you storyboard it all the way through, you really just get, honestly, just get to watch your scene over and over again, story and editorial, and you can constantly shave it and cut it. There's no reshoots. The reshoot is somebody just changing a board or adding a few more boards. Um, and the process of that is much cheaper than trying to get out on set and do that. So by the time you actually make what you're going to make in animation, it's been refined 50, 60 times, depending on how many, how long you've really been working on it. But you get to really carve out the process and that back and forth with story artists because their job is to expand what's on the page. They're like the first round of actors that go through with the material. They sort of expand it like a second round of writers and make it even better. And then you get your voice actors in there and 
they expanded a little bit more. And then by the time you get to animation, the animation artists, you know, the animators come in and they bring a, a whole new level of that. So it's really kind of this great process to see the material just continually grow as long as you, you know, cultivate, you know, with the right types of attitudes and, you know, keep a good focused uh, direction on the whole way. And so I have a really good team. I've been a storyboard artist by the name of uh, J.D. Leslie, Monique Arroyo, and um, Jay Klaus. And so they did a really great job. Um, we're really happy with the reels we have right now. We watched through the entire movie. Oh. Uh, it's about 20 minutes. You know, we watched it. It's about 20. Yeah, we watched about, it's about 20 minutes long. And we said, what's it missing? You know, the greatest thing about animation is we finished it and we go, what can we do better? What's not great? Like show it to people, get feedback. And so showing it to people that I work with in animation, got a lot of great things. So we complete, we're changing the ending completely, you know, based on a couple of notes that I got along the way and tried to address them in different ways and realize that, okay, maybe we should get rid of this part and have it all happen here. Maybe the, the opening does need some work. And so right now we're in the middle of boarding the opening and the ending. And when we're done with that, we have something that we can take to an animation studio and say, here it is. Let's break it down for assets. Let's see how much it's going to cost. Let's see if we can raise this money privately to make it, or if we go to crowdfunding to get it made, it would be, you know, an original project. But in the meantime, we're working on a nice little teaser that people can see uh, and hopefully get people excited about it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a short, so it's going to be about 20 minutes long. But I think it's something that people are going to want to put on in the background and show their kids. Um, oh, I'll show my they'll, nieces. They'll love it. Yeah, no, it's definitely, <laughs> it, we've definitely, it, we've, to, we've toned it down a little bit. We've dropped all the F-bombs out of it. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> I, Don't worry about no, that I, then. <laughs> I, I kind of saw it. I was like, you know what? Like, I see the kids are probably going to watch this. There's no reason for, like, characters to swear in these moments. It's just as funny with it or without it. So we kind of scrubbed that back. Um, and honestly like the last note was like how do we make this film ridiculous it's called ghost chicken it's got a ghost chicken in it like we haven't reached the level of absurdity yet that we can say that we fully earned our animation badge and so <laughs> you know working with jd uh we actually had a really good uh, pitch session for for the finale of the film so we're really excited for where it's going um you know jay uh who i mentioned is now working on the art department so we're putting together like the art book for it and all my experience from working in animation allowed me to connect with these people who are I believe they're all up in San Jose uh, around or around the San Francisco Bay area. Um, I'm cutting from home. I have artists around the world that I can kind of contact and have them do other things uh, for us. And with COVID kind of going on, this was like the perfect project to kind of work on during yeah. this time because it was the only one that it didn't require people to get together in the same place. We could just all work from our own homes and we could collaborate. And I have, you know, I have an editor friend who's been giving me sort of like tutelage on some things that I want to know as I'm expanding my editorial skills. Um, and it's just been a really fun, I mean, it's been one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on. That's for sure. Yeah. It sounds, it's really cool that, um, you know, even though the world's in a, well, was, it's definitely coming out on the other side now, but that, people were able to connect and to create something really fun and, like you said, absurd and ridiculous. And yeah. you're not going crazy waiting to be able to get back out on set and waiting for those moments where you're allowed to physically be in locations. And that, for the meantime, you know, you've got this really cool project and, and it's not like you're sitting there going, I have all these skills and I can't do anything right now. And that would be so frustrating. I can, ima I can imagine it would be. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think that there was definitely a frustration when, when COVID first hit because we had just finished Never Hike in the Snow. And 
there were things I probably would have done to like enhance it or like do different, but we were kind of locked away. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, during the process of making Never Hike in the Snow, our editor's father caught COVID and passed away. And so oh my the goodness, editor I'm was so gone. You know, so the, edit, the editor was away for a while. Yeah, no, it was awful. Um, yeah. You know, he was, you know, he had to deal with, you know, taking care of his family. He went back home to New York. He kind of put everything off to the side. And that's sort of when I was like, I am not working on anything. What can I do? Like, what do I do with my hands? Like, yeah, my brain. I to, my brain, I can't stop thinking about ideas. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on that. And it was really, I think, I don't know. I, I think with Ghost Chicken, it was sort of this this project that I was developing along the way. I'd written this script um, kind of with a friend of mine. We were sitting in a vegan restaurant and I said, and I, we were just kind of pitching ideas and I came up and I just went, Ghost Chicken. <laughs> and she was like, what? What? <laughs> and I just pitched, and, and literally just in one thing, I was just sitting in this restaurant and looking at things in the restaurant. I was just pitching the story of like, this would happen and that would happen and then this and blah, blah, blah. And then if you look here, and she was just like, what? She was like, well, go home and write it. And so flying home from this film festival, um, I wrote this script and start to finish, you know, I think it was maybe 15 pages at the time. And I showed it to my friend. I was like, what do you think? And she was like, oh, it's good. Oh, cool. And I just put it away. And I had other things to do. I was, I was working on a TV show at the time, uh, and I was working every day, and I was working on more Never Hike stuff, and so I was really kind of caught up in that. And I think when I sort of came out of that tidal wave of, of work, I went back and said, oh, yeah, I wrote this script. I guess since like I really don't have any films to go into the film festival this year, maybe I should clean this up and submit it. Um, I ended up submitting it to a few festivals, getting in, won a couple of awards with it, and it wasn't ever really my intention to seriously consider making it because I knew how hard it would be shooting a chicken. Um, <laughs> and, but it was the reaction by people. And I'm just reading people's reaction when they have the genuine reaction to something, it sort of said to me, this has to get me. Like, this is something that has been created that I'm responsible for that people are taking a liking to. And I think that it might have a good place in this world. So maybe it's worth putting some resources into. And um, it's just been a continual like refining process. I mean, the script that I submitted and won awards with is, you know, leagues behind what has happened now, now that I've worked with story artists and got really great notes back from that original pass and continually kind of pushing the product. So it, by the time it gets out and people see it, that it's gone through those layers of development and it's become a fully blossomed project. Um, which if we had made it right away and had made it sort of on the timetable that originally thought we would before COVID, it wouldn't have reached that potential. So yeah. I think that in a way, this delay has allowed it to grow into the, the fullest form of the project that it could be. Yeah, and the project that, that you want it to be. Yeah, no, I'm, we're really excited about it now. I mean, now that we have this new ending and it hit the absurd level, I'm like, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Map, I'm like, I'm like oh, I can't wait to get these boards and cut them and like get them in and do the voice acting. It's just ridiculous. Like, because it's about a ghost chicken who haunts a restaurant, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, it's about a vegan restaurant that's haunted by the ghost of a chicken and the one girl who's determined to figure out why. I love it. What is this chicken a, doing here? As a yeah. former vegan, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So it, and it's and it's fun. I mean, it kind of pokes at the vegan culture, it especially pokes at vegan culture in LA. 
Oh, yes. I was vegan the last time I was in L.A. And it is mind blowing. Like, um, yeah, just the amount of food I could eat because like back home, um, you know, I had to do a lot of cooking myself because there's not a lot of options if it's not processed food. But I was like, mm-hmm. I'm on holidays. I'm going to eat all the processed shit food ever. So I'm like at Veggie Grill. I'm at like Taco Bell eating just like <laughs> bean paste burritos. Uh, t- it's, yeah. It was a weird time. But I went to a vegan place on on Sunset Boulevard, and mm-hmm. it's owned by Travis Barker, the drummer from Blink-182. Okay. Crossroads, Crossroads Kitchen. Mm. And it was actually really good. And I would have eaten there if I was, because Travis Barker owns it. So I would have just been like, well, I'm going to go there now. <laughs> and yeah, but I do get that whole, um, how, not crazy, because it's not crazy, just how absurd some of vegan culture is. Sometimes it can I'm be like, a little pompous. And so we're yes. kind of, it, it's a little, <laughs> I got to say, like, I grew up in the South Park era. So people sniffing their own farts is sort of like embedded <laughs> in the back of my head. It's like sort of like that culture behind, like, yeah, yeah I get it. You don't have to tell me you're a vegan, like, over it. and over again. I get it. I yeah. get it. But like, even sort of like, the holier than now sort of, I mean, the place is called vegan Eden. So you want to see where we're going with it. Um, And it's really, you know, it was really fun kind of creating the world, poking fun at, you know, some things I think people will recognize. Some of the readers who have read the script, they were like, I have had food at this restaurant. I've ate here. Like I know this restaurant. And so it's good. I think it's also, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't go too far in depth with it but kind of the, the long short of it is that um it's it's kind of, i think it's sort of sometimes my thing with the culture that sometimes the people who exude it the most are actually the most evil of all so um yeah so it was kind of like that little twinge of it i'm definitely kind of like a counterculturist at heart and yeah, um grew up <laughs> listening to a lot of george carlin um so he kind of shaped my my world. I'm more view. Henry Rollins, but <laughs> okay, yeah, Henry yeah. Rollins. You know, I mean, there's plenty of great influences out there, but I'm yeah. definitely kind of like I'm always questioning things, even if I agree with it. I still want to question it just because I can't help myself. Um, yeah, that's so, what a critical thinker does. Yeah, and sometimes it's you know sometimes it is my detriment, sometimes it, it works to my benefit. But in the world of comedy, I feel like everyone can have a laugh. It doesn't dig too yeah. deep in anybody. I think everyone goes, yeah, this is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and, Even the vegans yeah, and, love and, the idea of a ghost chicken. It's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot, a lot of vegans who have read it have laughed. Again, oh, that's awesome. Like they've, said, I, they've, they've had food at this restaurant. They understand the people who are like this. It's um, relatable. Yeah, it's relatable. I mean, the, 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 I will say the restaurant that inspired it originally is not like that. It was actually a really great restaurant in Columbus, Ohio. They had a great vegan burger. Um, and I was completely impressed. And it just sort of like, I sort of went, what if this place was like LA? And I started to just kind of mix all my experiences with, with the vegan culture in one thing and, and explored it in the script. Um, really just centered it around a character that I think a lot of people are going to have fun with. It's like she, her name's Lex and she is just, she's just that person who can't let things go. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, when, 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 a, when a ghost chicken shows up in a restaurant, she's got to know why. And yeah. When she's sort of the only person who can see it in a way, and, you know, in a way we kind of play that um, that Looney Tunes uh, bullfrog game, where it's the singing frog. Like when when nobody's around, the singing frog's there, and you know, it's <laughs> dancing and singing and doing the whole thing, and then he shows it to the talent agent, and it's just a bullfrog with ribbons. <laughs> and so, it's this frustrating feeling of like she has to show people that this exists and that it it's real, and her adventure that it takes her on is sort of this kind of like 
weird sort of Nancy Drew, Scooby-Doo sort oh, of esque awesome. sort of solo adventure um, that all takes place within, you know, within the, the, this restaurant. And so there's a lot of fun. The characters are a lot of fun. Um, I got to voice a couple of them for now. Uh, hopefully I'll get to replace myself with people much better than I, but um, <laughs> you know, eventually that's kind of the thing. And, and with, I realized that after I left animation, I loved animation. It, it was a lot of fun, but it, it takes five years or three years to get a project done usually. Um, especially in the studio system. And I was tired of seeing all my friends make movie after movie after movie, sometimes three movies a year they've worked on. And I'm sitting there being like, I'm still working on my one credit. <laughs> my one lowly coordinator credit. Like, yay, three years. Like, yes. And so I was like, I got to get out of animation. And I got to get into live action. And I got to start making my own stuff. Because if I keep following this track, I won't make anything until I'm 50. And I think that, you know, when I walked away from animation, I thought that that was the right thing. It was like, you know, animation is not where I, what I came out here to do. I'm glad I learned these skills, but I don't need it right now. And a few years later, I realized that I missed sitting in a storybook. I missed sitting in editorial. I missed the sort of approach that animation has to filmmaking because it's very different from live action. Live action is like the military. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> and animation is like art school. Like that's, that's, those are the two types of like, uh, like mindsets that, that sort of kind of divide, you know, the industry, like in with live action, everything has to be done so right because everything's so expensive and those days are super expensive that you have to have these military plans to execute. And in animation, it's more, a little bit more laissez-faire. It's, it's a little bit more like, let the artist do what the artists do for three years. You know what I mean? Like you made that movie. Okay. Let's make it again and make it even better reboard this reboard that you know what scrap the whole thing write the whole thing from start put the board artist on something else it's like it's it's things that don't really happen in live action as often as they do in animation it's kind of like part of like no one wants to do that in live action like in animation it's sort of just the norm and i, I think for me it was it was just the camaraderie of it all so after all this time being able to step back into this uh medium has been sort of a, a return home for me yeah, that's so lovely. And it's all thanks to a shitty-ass pandemic. I know, right? I mean, <laughs> hopefully, maybe I would have, if there was no COVID, I would have still had the foresight to, to be smart enough to make this thing animated. And I think I probably would have got there eventually after being like, I can't shoot this chick. <laughs> <laughs> what like, are we going to do about I think the it's chicken? Filming in COVID. <laughs> well, I bet you filming a chicken by itself is harder than just filming in, in a COVID environment. <laughs> Um, speaking of like um, animation and live action, I had a friend who worked as a an artist on Happy Feet because they mm -hmm. they did Happy Feet one and two here mm -hmm. uh, with the studio here, and then he went over to do some of the art for Mad Max, and I yeah. was like, that's such a weird like. Well, it's the same director. Oh, is it George? Yeah, George Miller directed Happy Feet. And I didn't Mad know he Max. did Happy Feet. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's a very, uh, you, I mean, th well, so that's sort of like, like not to, I'm not George Miller, but <laughs> I go from Never Hike Alone to, ch to Ghost Chicken is sort of like the same thing. And, you know, wow. it's, it's George Miller is, is able to do multiple. I mean, Robert Rodriguez does, you know, Desperado and, um, you know, and, and, and the Grindhouse movies, and he also does yeah. Spy Kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that always blows so, my mind, because I'm just like, I loved Spy Kids, and now yeah, and he like, did Planet Terror? And it's like, that doesn't make yeah, sense for me. Yeah, the same guy, you know, the same guy who just directed that episode of Mandalorian is, is the same dude who did <laughs> wow. Spy Kids. And like, 
Hara so is so I think, cool. <laughs> so I think I'm definitely going to turn a few heads like that when this thing comes out. I'm like, wait, this is the same guy. Like, what a weirdo. Because I, I, I am. Weirdos are up my alley. <laughs> yeah. I think, hey, when we're in the horror world, I mean, if I'm a weirdo, I fit right in. So yeah. I'm totally fine. As if you're normal, let people in be like, who's this guy? What well, are you it's doing funny. I, I had the opportunity to work on um, American Horror Stories this uh, the, the first season for the for the anthology season, and they have the crew shirt is normal people scare me. Oh my god, that's perfect. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I got I got to work a few days on that, so that was really wow. cool. Um, I think fans are really going to be excited about that when that comes out. Um, if they're not aware, it's American Horror Story, but it's a season of um, eight anthology films. Yeah. So it was. Um, I'm not as familiar with American Horror Story as most, oh. most horror fans are. I watched like maybe some of the first season and I was like, I don't know if this is for me. But I was just starting to recognize things. Yeah. Um, and I had, a, I had a stunt actor friend who was playing like a famous, one of the famous characters that shows up in one of the seasons. So we were kind of joking about it. Like, yeah, just stop being <laughs> to play this guy. <laughs> like, it was I like, oh, man. It. It's um, Ryan Murphy does. Is it Ryan? It's Ryan Murphy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's Ryan Murphy. Yeah, I always get his last name mixed up with someone else. And I'm just like, is it the same person? Um. Oh, the first season blew my mind because I would have been, I think I was 20 when the first season came out and I was like a newbie to real horror, horror stuff. So when I watched that, it I, I scared the shit out of me. I was like, well, oh, not ready for this. <laughs> well, without spoiling anything, we got to shoot at Murder House. So that's where the set was. And apparently Murder House is really haunted. Yes, it is. It's one of the most haunted houses in L.A., yeah, apparently there were 88 spirits just in the basement alone. And somebody <laughs> caught on camera while we were there. Um, so we have to do, at the end of the day, uh, you have to get, basically have to check the set. Like when you're last man, you have to go around and check everything. So some of the, the PAs were going around. Yeah, and so some of the PAs were going around. They didn't want to go into the basement. So the locations person went into the basement and <laughs> sure all the lights were off. And as they were walking out, they heard like creaking wood and when they shine they had their their camera on and when they shined it over to the room there was a rocking chair just like rocking oh, by itself no and so I they just turn up ran out of the basement and they showed it to me and they were showing everybody that scene like look this is what happened last night and it was just like whatever oh like, i would have thrown up everywhere i get really excited about haunted stuff but it still scares me and if i'm scared yeah. i have a tendency to vomit See, I, I was kind of like, I think I want to go down there just because I, I'm used to it. And when I grew up, uh, the, the my bedroom was adjacent to a room where the guy who owned the house before us killed himself. Oh, my goodness. So when I used to get up at like 1 a.m. to go to the bathroom like or something, like if I woke up, I'd be petrified. And I learned how to walk my whole entire basement like with my eyes closed because I didn't want to open my eyes and see anything. I was like, if I can't see it, it can't <laughs> touch me. That's so strange. Yeah, a lot of the houses I grew up in young were haunted. Um, my first house, uh, when I was like one, a girl had actually um, was playing cowboys and Indians in her backyard. She was about seven years old and hung herself from the clothesline by accident. Ooh. And she haunted my bedroom. So <laughs> Was she at least nice? I don't know. I don't know. My parents said I just used to cry a lot. And then they moved me from her bedroom into another bedroom and I stopped crying. Oh, that's good. So I was like, she was just hanging out in my room and I got annoyed. Waking me up. Biggest mistake, waking me up. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, before we finish, I usually ask ask all of my guests' um, podcast or interview, review podcast, whichever one I do, what's the last horror film you watched? Oh, you know what? I actually just finished it today. I watched Leviathan. Oh, no way. I haven't seen that. <laughs> Yeah, so I was a big Steep, Deep Star 6 fan 
as a kid. That's the one I watch. And so uh, what I'm starting to discover even in my like, late horror like fandom is that there are films that weren't at my video store. And so mm. there's sometimes people talk about films that they're like, oh, yeah, it's just common knowledge that this thing exists. And so a couple of weeks ago, somebody on Twitter was like, Leviathan. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> Excuse what you, me? What do you mean Robocops in this movie <laughs> with Ernie Hudson? And, you know, I was just like, great cast. I mean, Colonel Troutman's in it. <laughs> I mean, it's like this mishmash, Ghostbusters, Rambo, Robocop, it. all in the same film. I was like, I'm in. And then it's just basically a, a ripoff of a thing. It's like The Abyss meets The Thing. Okay. And I'm gonna have I was to like, watch oh, okay. It's kind of like the Orca of, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit like Orca in a way. It, like, it kind of, like, I get what it's trying to do to be different, but it's not really that different. You're just um, like, wait a second. This all looks way too familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I was like, what? Because I, I thought it was going to be like a monster, and then it turns out to be kind of something else. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, uh, okay. I was like, I don't I'm know. So now, now Amazon's suggesting I watch Deep Star Six again, and I heard that it's not good on the rewatch. So I'm oh no! Or oh, you kind of like, yeah. yes, I'll watch it. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember that scene where the guy gets pulled up and the thing bites him in half, and that's oh, sort of yeah. like the image. Oh man, that was stupid. Ugh. The uh, the last film this I watched uh, was Pitch Black. Oh, because my partner hasn't seen it, and I was like, "How oh. have you not seen any Riddick films? What do you mean?" And he's like, I've never Those watched are... them. They're good. They're great to... action movies. He got to 37 without watching Pitch Black, Riddick, or Chronicles of Riddick. How? You know, so, sometimes those things fall through the <laughs> fall through the cracks. You just, you know, it, it's... Who was... You know, Vin Diesel wasn't anybody at the time. You know I what know. I mean? Crazy. He wasn't, he wasn't jumping cars off cliffs and flying into space. I mean... Flying into just space? Some yeah, I think they're going to space in the next couple Oh my god, I'm so done with the <laughs> That movie. That's some serious nitrous. Oh, they're just getting. Now, those movies are getting absurd. Yeah, I know. They're the Friday the 13th of the, mo- of the current <laughs> generation of like, how can they just keep making these movies? They honestly. But again, if you have a fan base that's there and they're going to yeah. keep paying for those tickets, come up with another plot. <laughs> they should have stopped at Tokyo Drift because that's the best Fast and Furious movie. See, I heard that that's the worst one. You haven't seen it? I have. I, oh. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I hey, point break with cars, the first one, and then after <laughs> that, I don't. <laughs> after that, I'm kind of like, okay, I guess. I'm here. Not, not big, I guess if it's on, I'll watch it just for like the ridiculousness of it. Like I've seen maybe the first three. Yeah, I think, just I be- think I've seen that as well. Yeah, I, I was actually, one of the films I was working on in animation was a racing movie, so I was doing a lot of research. I'm like, okay, how do they defy physics in these movies that make them actually look fun? And, like, uh, you know, I was actually really studying them, and now I just stopped. I was like, okay, I get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I go fast. All right. Yeah, and, I, and, and I've seen, like, want. pieces of other films, um, I think, throughout the time, because it's just been on in the background. I'm like, what is this? Re- oh, it's a Fast and the Furious. <laughs> oh, okay, that makes sense. You again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's you guys. All right, I'll just keep flipping. <laughs> Okay, well, um, thank you so much for joining me for this, my first bonus episode ever of my podcast. Hey. How cool is that? Thanks. Yeah, cool. I'm, I'm glad to be in, in the bonus list. This is kind of cool. Uh, before uh, I sign off, where can we find you online? 
Uh, you can find us at Wompstomp Films at uh, W-O-M-P-S-T-O-M-P-F-I-L-M-S. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, you definitely, all of our films are streaming for free on YouTube, including Never Hike Alone, Never Hike in the Snow, uh, the music video Disappear. There's a combination version of everything called The Ghost Cut. We also have an original short on there called Pathosis, Imagine. Um, you can see the behind the scenes making of Never Hike Alone. And then on, I believe, Friday the 13th in June, we're going to release the uh, behind the scenes for Never Hike in the Snow. So we got some cool things coming up. And then eventually that's where hopefully Ghost Chicken will live. It isn't yet bought and maybe put somewhere else. But um, for now, like that, that's we're basically doing that. And then just keep an eye out on... Um, on, on wompstompfilms.com as we announce more projects, um, especially when we come back with Never Hike Alone 2 uh, in the fall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.